All right, everybody, welcome into another edition of the podcast where Matt and Bob, we're here to pod, and you're listening to the Analysis. Very special um, episode today. We have joining us for a nice little chat, two-time Academy Award nominee, film editor of such films as The Thin Red Line, Beverly Hills Cop, and of course, Top Gun, Billy Weber. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Billy. Hey. It's a a thrill. I... I know this is radio and not TV, and it's becoming a habit of mine when we have a host on and, and they've uh, been involved in a, in a movie that I'm very fond of that I make a t-shirt. So today I've got my Talk to Me Goose custom-made shirt here with the aviators. Talk to me, Goose. Talk to me, Billy. I'm excited to, to, to speak with you. And you were a referral from one of our previous guests, a buddy of our podcast now, Paul Hirsch. and yeah. When we asked Paul, you know, who else do you think w- might be great for our podcast? You were uh, automatically the first name that came to his mind. So uh, thank you for listening to Paul and thank you for being here. You're welcome. To get us started in the conversation, you're talking to a couple guys who started in, uh, with a passion in, in this industry, similar to some of the research I, I was doing on you, similar to your experience. And, and I actually heard that you were originally an actor and an improviser, which speaks a lot to me and Matt because that's where our passions lied too. And, and I'm just really interested in hearing how did you go from acting and improvising to finding your way into the editing room? I, I actually wouldn't go as far as saying I was an actor. Okay. I, I <laughs> Neither would I. Neither do we. <laughs> I wanted to be an actor for, uh, for a while. And I took a couple of classes at uh, UCLA and I found that what I really enjoyed was the improvising part of it and uh, and the only because I thought I wasn't good enough to do scripted parts when I would do them Uh, but the improvising I really had fun and really enjoyed it and took two classes two semesters worth and then I, I, I would say I felt like I wasn't good enough, but that's now that I know better now that if I had just stuck with it. You've done you know, enough would, editing now that you know, oh, I could have probably made <laughs> I would have gotten better at it. However, I had an aunt who also knew I wanted to act and I was very close with her and she lived in LA and she was a uh, LA County adoption worker and a husband and wife came in to her office and they wanted to adopt a baby. And he was an assistant film editor at the time, uh, about to become a film editor. His name was Sid Levin. I say was because he just passed away less than a year ago. Mm. Uh, but so she got to know him and liked him a lot and said to me that she'd met this film editor who would come in to adopt a baby would I like to meet him? She probably could set that up. And I said, yeah, I'd love it. So she set it up and I went to meet him at his cutting room at a studio that's now called The Lot in Los Angeles, L-O-T. At the time was Goldwyn Studios and it had been owned by Sam Goldwyn uh, years ago. And before Sam Goldwyn owned it, I think uh, 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 Mary Pickford and... Um, uh, Charlie Chaplin and um, oh god, Rudolph Valentino. No, not Valentino. It was Mary Pickford's husband at the time. He was a famous actor, and his son became a, a, a Douglas Fairbanks. Doug, that's who I'm thinking of. Douglas Fairbanks, Fairbanks yeah. Mary Pickford, right? and Charlie Chaplin owned the studio, and they saw ended up selling it to Sam Goldwyn, and it was called Goldwyn Studios for years. And Sid was working on a movie there. As an assistant editor, I'd never been to a movie studio, and but I'd born and raised in LA, but I'd never been to a studio. And I went to visit him, and he showed me what he did and what an editor does in the cutting room and showed me how to splice film and uh, took me to a coding room. And he also took me to a soundstage. He said, come on, let's go on to this soundstage. They're shooting a movie right now. The movie was The Fortune Cookie, starring uh, Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau, directed by Billy Wilder. Mm-hmm. He took me into the uh, stage, onto the stage, and there was Billy Wilder talking to Matthau and Lemon, 
and they were standing in an elevator set, and he was just talking to them. Well, it blew my mind that I got to see them in person and saw that. So I was very taken by everything he was doing and what he was doing in the cutting room, especially. So I said, God, this is great. And then I left. I was with him probably an hour and a half, something like that. And then I left. And about two months later, same aunt called me and said, well, turns out I ran into a very old college friend of mine who's now working at Universal Studios. And I said to him, well, my nephew wants to get into editing. Do you think you could in any way help him? He said, I have no idea. I don't have anything to do with <laughs> or television, but I work for MCA. He should come see me. So I went to see him and he had an office. I don't know if you've ever been to LA to uh, and seen Universal Studios, but at the front of the studio is a 13 story off black office building called the MCA Tower is what it was called then. That's when MCA still owned Universal. And all of the offices, executives were in that building. And depending on what floor you were on, get, said where you were within the hierarchy of the studio. And he had an office on the eighth floor. So I went to see him, a wonderful guy, really sweet. And he explained to me, what he did there had nothing to do with movies. He, uh, years earlier, like maybe five years earlier, had come up with an idea, which was uh, the only way you could ever watch the Indianapolis 500 race was in person at the Indy 500 track in Indianapolis. He came up with an idea that was there some way to bring cameras to the Indy 500 track, shoot the race live as it was happening, and broadcast it on what was called Kinescope to movie studios. I mean, excuse me, not movie studios, movie theaters. Mm -hmm. One day a year. So he proposed this idea, came up with it, found technically people that could do that, and he sold the idea to movie theaters. They loved it. One day a year, they'd run the Indy 500. You as a customer would buy a ticket and you went to the theater and saw it on a big screen, watch the Indy 500. Hmm. MCA heard about this and loved this idea and called him and said, we'd like to buy this idea from you. And if you're willing to sell it to us, we'd like you to come to MCA and run it year round. He said, okay. So he sold the idea to them and that's what he did year round. Sold advertising for it, uh, lined everything up, lined up the theaters, and that's what he did. And MCA owned this idea, and that's what he did year round. So he tells me this. He said, So I don't have a clue how to make movies, how they make movies, television, nothing. But what the hell? Why don't we go down to the employment office just to see what we can find out? Okay. He takes me down. The employment office is in the basement of the MCA tower. We walk in, the woman who ran the employment office, whose name I have never forgotten, this was 1967. Her name was Lucille Akana. She looked at him, she knew where his office was, which was on the eighth floor. I had a job three days later. Jesus. Just because of where his office was. And the job was not in editing, it was in what was called the script department within the print shop of the studio, which meant this is where they printed all of the scripts, and then we delivered them, collated them, put them together, and delivered them all over the lot to every department at the studio. So that's what I did for <laughs> a year and a half. Until, and once you did, once you had a job at a studio, at pretty much any studio, but in the case of Universal, when you had a job at Universal, regardless of where you were. You could have been a laborer, an electrician. It didn't matter what it was. You could go to another department at the studio and say you wanted to get into that department. I wanted to work in that department. So I went to the editorial department and told them I worked in a print shop and I wanted to get into editing. And they said, okay, 
you come over here lunchtime on your own free time and we'll let you do splicing here and uh, move things and do heavy lifting. And after a while, once we have made sure everyone in the union in LA is working or doesn't want whatever job we have available, uh, you have a chance of getting a job here. So maybe eight months later, I had a job in film shipping at Universal Studios editorial department. That got me in the union, and that was how I started. That is incredible. It just seems with Hollywood sometimes you hear these stories that are almost unbelievable where, and it always starts with, I dropped out of school, right? And, and then it's, you know, Spielberg just shows up on a couch and just basically says, I'm here, I'm here to stay. Or yeah. Baker shows up at his idol's house and he just says, I'm here, I'm here to stay. And, and really for you, it, it kind of, it's similar to that, only you've got this incredible aunt that I wish I had. My aunt pretty much just brought oranges to the soccer game but couldn't give me a career in Hollywood, but wow, uh, what, a, what a great story. I love it's that you funny. start at the basement and then literally work your way up yeah. the floor. Yeah, yeah, the print shop was in the basement also. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned Spielberg, just, uh, you know, sat down on the couch. That all happened while I was in the print shop at Universal, the Spielberg story. I know like some nerd named Spielberg's just in my couch. I know whose couch he sat on it was Chuck Silver's, who then introduced him to Sid Sheinberg, and uh, Spielberg showed his student film, which was called Amblin, yeah. uh, to Sid Sheinberg, and they gave him an office. How did that work? Uh, you just break in and sit on a guy's couch? The way to see Chuck Silvers, who was head of the, uh, at one point was head of the editorial department. And so he had an in in that way. And I think he met him through his mother, maybe. He's not, I'm not even sure. But that all happened while I was working in the print shop. Is today's Hollywood, do they, do they keep any of that, Billy? Is it, is it still really about who you know in terms of uh, jobs that you're getting in, in today's industry? Uh, yes and no. I mean, it certainly helps. Uh, but who you know, it doesn't have to be a big, famous person. It doesn't have to be uh, someone with a lot of power. It just has to be someone who knows people who can then introduce you to someone that might be able to offer an internship of some kind, or uh, it's, it's actually easier now than it was then. That's Interesting. Crazy. So taking this acting experience or acting passion, and how did some of the skills translate into the editing room? Uh, as far as I know, not at all. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> it all had to do with me. For as far as I'm concerned, and I still believe this, is that if you're a good storyteller, you can be a good editor. Okay. I really believe that. Uh, and in a way, if you can tell a joke, you can be a good editor. And when I say you can tell a joke, it means you can tell a joke and people laugh. And, you know, and you're a good storyteller. It means you're a good storyteller. It's why I also believe that really good comedians are really good actors. Oh, yeah. yeah. They seem to transition pretty seamlessly. Uh, yeah, and I don't necessarily work the other way, but good comedians are good actors. And you know, you can go down the list. It's astounding. Yeah, Robin Williams is off the top of my head. Um, you can go back to Charlie Chaplin. Yeah, really. And, and, it's, and that is something that is preached, or at least in Matt and I's time at Second City, where it's, you, know, you, play, the, uh, you play the moment honestly as an actor, Yes. You're, you're not in on the joke as the performer. The situation becomes funny, but you yourself, you know, you're, you're playing an honest moment. And, and yeah. that's when the truest laugh comes. And so if you're playing a moment honestly, that works in, in comedy and in drama. Absolutely. I agree completely. Yeah. So, I mean, so Terrence Malick is obviously a, um, a big part of your career. Uh, how did that kind of come about? I mean, just this legendary I, every 20 years or so. Not really. It's not, not, not like that anymore. Uh, there was a 20-year gap, but yes. Right. So I, uh, I was, got a job, a short-term job, to help out as a, a movie called The Candidate with Robert Redford was uh, in post-production, and they were getting ready to mix and all that, and they had been cutting the movie in San Francisco. 
And then they came down to LA to get into the post-production part of it, uh, getting closer to the mix. And there were two editors on that show. And I got called by someone who was called by them to see if they could come work on it. They couldn't. Uh, but so she gave them my name and they called me and I said, yes, I was available. And so I went to work on the candidate as an assistant editor in uh, helping out uh, with one of their sound editors, a woman named Kay Rose, who was the dialogue editor. And on that movie, there were two picture editors on it, a man named Richard Harris, and the other one's name was Bob Estrin. And Richard was in the union, Bob was not, but because they were, had been cutting in San Francisco, they were allowed to do that, uh, hire Bob as a non-union editor. If they were in LA, they wouldn't have been allowed to do that. But now when they moved to LA, to, just for the end of the post period, no, they didn't, no one called the union and said, we have a non-union person in addition to a union person. They didn't do anything. They just let Bob stay on. And then when we were finishing up and getting very close to the mix, Bob said to me, I just made a deal to cut a very low budget non-union movie. Would you be willing to be my assistant? And I said, absolutely, because I wouldn't have said no to any job on any movie. And I said, yes. And that was Badlands. Uh, and so that's how I met Terry. Was Badlands that. was your first big movie. And something that yeah, a few of our fans said is a, is, is a masterpiece. They love it. And I had done, uh, I had cut Messiah of Evil at that point mm -hmm. already. Uh, but, uh, but Badlands was how I met Terry. And during the course of Badlands, which was long, we post-production on it was 15 months, something wow. like that. Oh, gosh. Um, but that's nothing compared to, you know, Days of Heaven, which was two years, so. Whoa. But, uh, so Badlands, Terry and I became best friends. That's what happened. Can you talk to us about what it's like to edit a Terrence Malick film? I mean, yeah, 15 months post-production, two-year post-production, 30 years in production for a Tree of Life. I mean, there yeah. you must have so much um, footage coming to you. I mean, what? how, yeah, do, you how do you storyboard stuff? that or create the story, right? It's just pictures well, of an architect or a sunflower. Well, Terry's, well, he's, he's not fast, so... You know, but Badlands, it was pretty straightforward. I don't know if you've seen it, but Badlands is the movie that was the script. It, it didn't change. Okay. Uh, it's just, you know, we didn't have the voiceover recorded until after we finished shooting. But it was always written. It was written and it was in the script, the voiceover. Oh, okay. Uh, so the voice, because, yeah, that was one of the questions I had was what when did the decision to add the voiceover come in? Because I, that, I that was always intended to have voiceover, okay. always. And when he made the deal for the movie, the voiceover was in the script. And it, it, it rarely changed. I mean, we did, there were little changes in it, but he recorded what he had written. As a matter of fact, the reason he hired Sissy Spacek for Badlands was because what she sounded like when she read from a written page. Interesting. He, when he hired her, he had her read the voiceover in the, when he first met her. And after hearing her do that, he hired her. Yeah, Martin, though, he didn't even want to talk to Martin. He knew who he was, but he never met him. And his casting director, Diane Crittenden, said, I really think you should meet Martin Sheen. And he said, no, I'm not interested. I've seen what he's done. Not interested. Wow. And, and he just couldn't find anyone that would say yes. Uh, they wanted to do it. And then she kept pushing for Martin. And Terry finally said, okay, fine, fine, bring him in. He came in, Martin met him. I mean, Terry met him, talked to him, hired him that day. And wow. Martin was, you know, he's phenomenal. Just fantastic in that part. I mean, yeah, he's he's a, a transcendent talent, and 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 he's, then he's my president, Chip. There you go, there you go, your math president. But uh, and then so you you get nominated for an Oscar for Thin Red Line, and you know I've heard just a lot about the just just rumor, I guess, or hearsay that the the plot of the film changed a lot in production and post, and actually Jim Caviezel believed he was the main character of that movie when he first signed on to do it. And then watching the final cut was 
relegated to more of a, a supporting or a minor role. Uh, just how much of that story changed? Or how much of that story kind of bears weight? It's, it's not that. Here's the way it was. Jim Caviezel was not hired. Uh, his part was not the main role. Adrian Brody's part. Oh, that the, okay. Adrian Brody. Okay. It wasn't Caviezel. It was Adrian Brody. And then when the movie was finished, Adrian maybe he had one line in the movie. That was okay. it. And Jim became the main character. Okay. Uh, and that happened just through a course of time while shooting. Terry was just felt that Jim, Jim's character seemed more interesting to him. And, uh, and for what he was trying to do with the characters. And that's how that came about. And however, story-wise, I mean, the movie was what, you know, he, Terry was trying to be very honest to the book and, um, and really liked the book a lot. And I don't know if you've read the book. The book, is full, the book is full of voiceover, packed from the very beginning. Uh, half of the book is marching up to the line. Oh, wow. with every character having voiceover, talking about their life and what they're missing and, and stuff like that. So Terry used that as a guide, but, you know, wrote it, a lot of it himself. And uh, we recorded 120 hours of voiceover for Thin Red Line. <laughs> How long was the first cut of that movie? Five hours. Wow. Oh, my gosh. And you got it down to just below uh, three hours. Two hours and 50 minutes, I think, something like wow. that. Wow, yeah. What was the process just to cut away on that? Like, what were you guys, what was the strategy to, to trim? Well, the, strat the first strategy was to just stick with the story and take out any scenes that didn't have to do with the main story and the main characters. So we did. We took whole, we took, I remember we took almost an entire reel out that was all about um, a scene with the actor, Nick Stahl had a scene in the movie that was almost an entire reel where he goes out into the jungle just to go to the bathroom. <laughs> While out in the jungle, sees a Japanese soldier walking through the jungle with a big rifle and knows in his mind, if that Japanese soldier sees him, he's gonna kill him. So he kills the Japanese soldier. They have a whole fight and he kills the Japanese soldier. He doesn't tell anyone and he comes back to the base camp and he just sits down and he's really upset, really, really upset by what happened. And it's uh, Sean Penn comes up to him and you can see that he's really upset. He wants to find out if he's okay. Uh, and he talks to him and he keeps talking to him and he finally it comes out, it just bursts out. What happened? They go out to the jungle, they find the body. Um, and they bury the body. And it was a very moving part of the movie. Very well done. All the acting is great. And we cut the entire thing out of the movie because Nick does not have a big part. And mm. we were a five hour movie and we had to get it down. And the best way to do it was to take out scenes that weren't essential to the movie. And that's why that scene came out. And so we just kept going through the movie like that. And it took us, from the time they got back from Australia and Guadalcanal, we were on it for a year. We worked on it for a little over a year, like 13 months. Yeah. And they shot for about, uh, they shot, I think, from June to November, something like that. How does, how does that experience compare to something like working on a Tony Scott film? I, I can't think of more different directors you know i mean top gun and days of heaven um uh, which was really cool that actually uh brockheimer and simpson that you you mentioned in that variety uh, article the um, the producers had kind of seen your work on days of heaven and thought you'd be great for for a brockheimer film i, I just found that really interesting that uh, they i had no idea if that had anything to do with it okay. actually what happened was is uh i uh <clears throat> I first got to know people at Paramount because of Days of Heaven. And uh, Paramount was phenomenal to us. Uh, when we finished Days of Heaven, they were fantastic. They let us make a dozen 70 millimeter prints and uh, they had us set theaters up all over the country. 
for those 70 millimeter. They were willing to buy equipment for the theaters. They were great about the distribution because the man that owned Paramount, a man named Charles Bluthorn, he owned Gulf and Western, which owned Paramount. He loved the movie, loved it. I thought it was great. I hadn't seen it before. It's beautiful. Oh, okay. And uh, so he loved the movie and he was great to us. And he loved Terry and he wanted Terry making movies for them. So I got to know people at Paramount because of that. And then I worked on uh, 48 Hours. I worked on The Warriors. Uh, and An iconic movie there, Warriors. Warriors, yeah. Boy, they, we got shit during the release of that. There were too many really? fights. Well, there were so many fights in theaters because of it, because gang members would go see the movie that Paramount pulled it out of theaters after two weeks. Wow. Well, and it just kind of caught on cult status then. Yeah, exactly. Maybe just because of the buzz of the fact that it's not allowed in theaters that brought up the extra juice. Maybe, who knows, but it wasn't a good release. It made no money. But uh, well, if it Hill, makes you if it makes you feel any better, my uncle Terry, it's one of his favorite movies. So at least <laughs> that's wow. Uncle Terry shout out. Wow, there are a lot of people like that. I mean, it definitely has a cult following. So, uh, so anyway, I got to be known by people at Paramount, the head of post production, and stuff like that. So, and then worked Warriors was a Paramount movie, Forty Eight Hours was Paramount, and then I went up to Canada and I cut a movie called Iceman that Fred Skepsi had directed. And when I finished that, the man who was head of post-production named Paul Hager at Paramount called me and said, so we got three movies. I want you to cut one of them. I'm sure I can get you on one of them. So come on over. So I went over and one of the movies that he wanted me to work on, didn't have, they hadn't hired an editor yet. It was a movie starring Robert De Niro and Meryl Streep. Um, I, uh, uh, blank the title out of my mind because uh, of what the director said to me, which I never, he refused to interview me. And the reason was, is I had not cut enough big movies. That was literally what he told Paul Hager. So Paul Hager said, so fuck him. I'm going yeah. <laughs> to interview on another movie we're doing here called Beverly Hills Cop. And uh, it's being pretty Jerry Bruckheimer and uh, Don Simpson and and they had done Flashdance and uh, and uh, so I want you to go interview with them and the director is this young guy named Martin Brest. So I go and meet Marty Brest and Bruckheimer's there and we have oh I don't know 45 minutes together talking and I leave and go home. And an hour later, I got a phone call from Paul Hager said, so they want you to cut the movie. That's how that happened. And, uh, and, um, and then that and the next two movies I cut, so three movies in a row, made my career. Yeah. Now, that didn't hurt that I had uh, been on Badlands, Days of Heaven, and everything I had done. But what really made my career in the movie industry when it came to other studios and studio executives and stuff like that was, I cut three movies in a row, Beverly Hills Cop, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, and Top Gun. Yes. When I went, when I was finishing Beverly Hills Cop, I, went, I got a phone call from the producer of Pee Wee's Big Adventure, would you come and meet Tim Burton? So I go to meet Tim Burton and I come back, and we're still finishing Beverly Hills Cop, we're mixing. So I do it uh, while we're mixing. I come back to the mixing stage and Bruckheimer says to me, uh, so he said, I said, I think I'm going to cut it. What? He said, you're going to cut, cut a Pee Wee Herman movie after cutting this, after cutting Beverly Hills Cop? And I said, well, I really like this Tim Burton guy. We had a really good meeting and, uh, and uh, yeah, he's a really interesting guy. So I cut Pee Wee. And then we have the premiere of Pee-wee. And oh, uh, so we finish, they start shooting Top Gun. I mean, and Jerry wanted me to cut Top, wanted me to cut Top Gun from the beginning. So they start shooting Top Gun two weeks before we finish the mix of Pee-wee. So I'm mixing Pee-wee and at lunchtime every day, I go look at dailies on Top Gun. 
Oh, that must so be then fun. we finished the mix of Pee Wee. I, on a Friday, on Monday, I go into work on Top Gun. But after we finish the mix, a week later, we have the big premiere screening of Top Gun, of Pee Wee. A huge premiere at Grauman's Chinese Theater, big crowd, lots of people. And Jerry comes to see it, and so does Marty Bress, who had already done Beverly Hills Cop, and we had become good friends also. So they go to see the movie, and when the movie's over, Jerry comes up to me and said, well, so you were right. <laughs> we, we, so let's, let's crow, unpack Jerry these. Yeah, let's, let's unpack these three here, because yeah. I have them all starred. But first of all, Beverly Hills Cop, I don't know if you can see Matt's hat there, but he's got a, we're both, no. we're both uh, Metro it. Detroit kids. So oh. that's a movie that's that's very. I actually am still saving up money to buy the Axel Foley uh, jacket from uh, one of the sequels, <laughs> Detroit Lions jacket. But uh, it's Are it's you from Detroit. Is one of you from Detroit? We're both. We're both from Metro Detroit. Yeah. My mom went to high school at Northern High School. Oh okay. Yeah. Oh right on. She graduated oh, yeah. from Northern High. Yeah, Great. Bob's from uh, Royal Oak, and I'm from the suburbs of Livonia Novi. But uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but definitely uh, uh, familiar with Northern. But we, um, so obviously a movie as, as you're coming up as, yeah, a, yeah, as a young Jerry kid. Jerry Bruckheimer also went yeah. to high school. Yeah. Oh, I didn't and, know that. But yeah. as, you're, as we're coming up in, is, as kids, uh, it's just, it's, it's something that just gets passed around like the Bible almost in, in Detroit is Beverly Hills Cop. It's a rite of passage. And, um, you know, we, uh, I, I just want to hear the stories of, Eddie Murphy on set. How much was improvised? How fun was it to work on that movie? Well, Marty himself is a tremendous amount of fun. And so it was a lot of fun. Sometimes there would be scenes that they were shooting. If you went to the set, especially like on an improv scene, Marty would have to like have a towel nearby that he could bite on so that you couldn't hear him <laughs> while Eddie was doing stuff. I can tell you two scenes right off the bat that I remember were improvised completely. One was Eddie uh, talking about, uh, to Ronnie Cox, about the scene in the nightclub uh, with uh, Judge and uh, Judge Rhino and they how they sort of got the bad guys in the nightclub. And Eddie tells how, how it happened and he improvises the whole thing. It's all improvised. The super cops. Super cops, exactly. That was a line he came up with on the spot. And the other one was when he tries to get into the country club uh, to go see the bad guy. And he's trying to tell him who he is. And he says, tell him that what's his name came by to see him. And oh yeah, when he pretends to be his love. The herpes? Doesn't he talk about the herpes? <laughs> yeah, like, okay, that entire thing was improvised by Eddie. Oh, that's amazing. How did they get that? Well, that guy laughing his ass off. Oh, that's so Yeah, good. well, I mean, Marty and he, Eddie would talk beforehand, like in the trailer and stuff, and Eddie would say, I got an idea, I got an idea. So suppose I try this. And then he'd say that, and Marty say, yeah, go, come on, let's go, let's go try it. And then Eddie would do it, and then it became this really Maybe great... Maybe you better tell him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was um, so fun. Yeah. Well, what's so, interesting, having talking... Uh, um, spoken with Paul briefly because uh, he didn't really come down to this set much whereas you you, you know you're an improviser and uh, did you enjoy coming down to the set more or I like going to the set I didn't like it depended you know I didn't love it I didn't want to be a crew person at all right I didn't yeah like the job of being a set crew person uh, I didn't feel like it was creative but uh, but the editing was and I loved I, I loved watching the actors. I really loved it. Uh, uh, there's a movie I cut, uh, uh, um, Rules on Applied. On Rules, Warren wanted me at the set every day. I was at the set every day. Oh, wow. Air shooting. Every day. Interesting. Yeah, early in the morning, I'd go in and cut, and then when I got around to be 9, 9.30, when I knew they were getting ready to start shooting, I'd drive down to the set. I'd spend the whole day there. Whoa. That's a, a long hours. Yeah. Yeah. So to to get us into Pee Wee, because I, I just know a lot of our listeners will kill me if we don't get yeah. into Pee Wee. 
you know, it's, it's new Tim Burton and, and even your story meeting him, you know, he doesn't have the, the brand yet. He's probably trying to establish himself in terms of the look and feel of his movies. And then you've got a, then you've got a brand like Pee Wee Herman and they're kind of meshing together. What, what was it like kind of like each one of those things has a unique style that they probably wanted to, to come through in that movie. What was it like trying to make that happen? Well, Paul knew what Paul and Tim both had gone to school at CalArts College. Well, not at the same time, but they were both graduates from CalArts. And Paul had seen Tim's student films, uh, which I had also. And he was really interesting, a really interesting filmmaker. And Tim is very much like the production designer also of the movie, not just the director. Mm -hmm. So he really has an idea for each scene, what he wants it to look like, uh, and literally, physically, what he wants it to look like. So he's very into that, and Paul knew that. And Paul figured, well, you know, Paul and his producers had written the script. So Tim had nothing to do with the script. Um, And the only film that Tim had done outside of a student film was the short version of Frankenweenie which Disney absolutely hated and canceled his contract over it. Um, and the next day, the day after his, can- his contract was canceled, Warner Brothers, the head of production there at the time, uh, who knew who Tim was, signed Tim to a three-picture deal the next day. Wow. And uh, then the Pee-wee idea came up, and they said, yeah, we want Tim to do this. So... Tim was the guy, but Tim had never done a studio movie at all. I mean, he'd never done any movie, really, nothing movie length. So he was very nervous about it. And so I was sort of like someone for him to lean on. And at one point, he rapped at 4.30 in the afternoon on a shooting day. And I saw those dailies. And I said, what the fuck? You You didn't even have half a scene here. So I went to see him. And I said, you know what you did yesterday? We're not going to be able to use anything there. It's not a good scene. And you rapped after a half a day. You, they are going to give you such shit at the studio. It's going to be ridiculous. So listen to me. And don't forget this. Never, ever rap early. Never rap early. And don't worry about what might happen if you go over into overtime. Never rap early. So he said, okay. The next day, he was shooting, if you've seen Pee-wee, he was shooting the scene at Francis's house in the swimming pool, the indoor pool, the fight he has with Francis. Tim shot starting probably at 7 in the morning, and he didn't wrap till 11 o'clock that night. And the studio gave him such shit over that. You know, overtime, we're going to make you pay for this, all kinds of bullshit. And I went to him and I said, that's great. Don't worry about a thing. The scene is terrific. It's going to cut together great. Don't do anything different. From now on, if you got to go late, just do it. Just fuck them. Don't yeah. worry. And that's how we did the rest of the movie. And that's probably how he did it the rest of his career. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty Tim, much. The Tim Burton director whisperer, Billy. Yeah, love yeah, it. Yeah. Love so that anyway, scene too with the gum, with the gum, with the black teeth. Great scene. We, we cut that movie, the fastest I've ever worked on a movie in my life. 26 weeks from first day of shooting to end of the mix and answer prints. Okay. Because you're used to two hour long with post-productions. Two yeah. years. Or two, yeah. two years. Two, two years. years. Yeah. It was 26 weeks. Uh, we had a preview. We, we ran the movie at the studio. It was just a very, very mediocre preview. And this, producer said, let's take it out of town and see how we do. So we took it to Austin, Texas. And in Austin, Texas, I'd say 150 people showed up dressed as peewee in the suit, everything. Dressed as peewee. They loved the movie. Loved it. We flew from Austin, Texas to San Diego, did a preview in San Diego. They loved the movie. So we had these two great, really high-scoring previews. So the studio said, huh, that's interesting. But the uh, distribution people, uh, the marketing people at Warner's had no faith in the movie whatsoever. So they only opened it in four cities. And in each city, the movie outgrossed Back to the Future. 
Hell yeah. Even though so, I went back to the future. Whoa. So that's it. That that was uh, so they realized, oh shit, we maybe do have like a smallish movie, but a movie people really like. So it became Warner's second grossing, biggest grossing movie that year. So uh, Goonies was number one, and we were number two. That's well, awesome. How gross Back to the Future? I did not know that at all. Yeah, I mean, it did not gross Back to the Future overall, but in those four cities right. that they opened. When it went head to head. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. Wow. And then we get to the big dog, Top Gun. Yeah. But so what so what were some of the challenges that you guys had in shooting kind of an action movie in the air? Uh, tremendous challenges. Tremendous. <laughs> uh, because what happened, we didn't shoot any of the flying footage until we had finished shooting the whole ground story. So, and then we went up to Northern Nevada where there's a US Navy flying, you know, massive piece of Nevada that is a, a air base where they teach pilots how to be Top Gun pilots. And we went there to shoot and we had real Top Gun pilots that were gonna fly for us. And uh, they looked at the script pages for all the flying scenes and said to Tony, God, it was really fun reading those pages. By the way, you know, we, we can't do anything that's written there. <laughs> what, what do you mean? They said, well, we can't make the planes do what it says there. Nothing, not one thing. And he said, well, what can you do? He said, well, we have these flaps on the wings that when we hit a, a, a uh, control on the plane, it makes the flaps go down. And when the flaps go down, the nose of the plane will point up for just a moment. And then you move the flaps again and we go fly straight forward. He said, that's it? He said, yeah. I can it's fly. the inverted scene. What do we I can, do? We can fly at you and I'll fly over your head past you. That's pretty much what these planes can do. Can you hit the brakes and we'll fly right past? No, sorry. No. Calls from Nevada and he tells me, What's going on? I said, fuck. Oh, oh, also, no, no, so he didn't tell me that. He, he shoots, so he goes and he shoots for a day. And I, he they send all the footage to LA to the lab. And I look at the footage and it's boring beyond belief. It's just little planes in the sky against the blue sky flying. Right to left, left to right, that's it. So I call up Tone in Nevada and I said, man, we're fine. What about what's written in the script? Are you going to shoot that stuff? He said, well, I've been told by the pilots they can't do anything that's written there. Wow. And I said, well, no, here's what we got to do. We have to somehow shoot these scenes like we're shooting a chase scene in a movie on the streets. You know, cars go right and left and we're chasing them and they come at us. We go at them. They come at the camera. He said, I know. And I said, is there any way you can get to a hill, up on top of a hill or something, and have them come at you like that, or go over, over you and past you? And I said, that's not a bad idea. I don't know, I'll go on a location scout tomorrow. So he does that, spends the whole day driving all around the area, and he found, finds a hill that you can get up to the top of. So he gets one of the pilots, and he takes them up there, and he says to them, if we shot from up here and set up a bunch of cameras, could you fly up the side of this hill towards where we are? And the guy said, yeah, we could do that. Could you come right at us? You know, we're up at like 800 feet, 1,000 feet on the top of this hill. Could the planes fly right at us and over our heads? Yep. Could you fly over our heads away from us? Yep. He said, okay, let's try that. And, uh, so now he knew that they were going to be able to shoot plane to plane. That we were going to be able to do. And we knew that we would uh, have someone in the plane, a pilot, actually shoot from plane to plane. Besides having a camera actually attached to underneath the wing of a plane and shoot like that. So we knew we could do that. But the other stuff we couldn't do like a, a cameraman, a really a, one of our camera people, in like a helicopter 
and shoot one of the jets because the jets would just blow the helicopter right out of the sky. So we got up, bought six cameras up to the top of the hill and started shooting. And what you see in the movie, 75% of the shots were shot from up on that hill. Wow. That's how we did it. Did, uh, had, had you shot the, uh, the cockpit footage prior to going out to Nevada, like, you know, Tom Cruise in, in front of the... That was the, the last shot in that was oh. all later. That, that, was, that was all later, okay. When they finished shooting in northern Nevada, they came back to L.A., and we took a hangar out at Burbank Airport and put uh, all of our gear in there and shot all the cockpit footage in there right when they got back. So you were able to match that sort of reactionary first-person footage to what you had kind of gotten out in Nevada. We did a very, very quick first cut of the stuff that we had shot in Nevada, cut it together and sent it over to the state, the hangar where they were shooting the cockpit footage. Wow. So we had to shoot stuff that would fit in with that. Because it's so, so clean when you watch it, it really does make a lot oh, yeah. of We got really lucky. There's not a frame left that was usable. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I wanted to ask next, I mean, um, based on what you just said about how tricky it was to get those shots, I mean, it, they do describe a fairly inti- uh, you know, intricate dogfight. I mean, it looks like you got it done. I mean, uh, was that just movie magic or were you able to get enough of what you needed from the angles from them coming over that hill? It was a combination of getting really lucky with the footage and then bringing pilots in to the cutting room, Top Gun pilots, who were great, great people to talk to and, and uh, uh, talk about whatever problems we were having. We'd show them cuts of scenes, and then we'd say to them, what could you say here that wouldn't sound stupid to a pilot, but would sound to an audience like it was saying what was going on? and be believable. And they told us things that we could say that wouldn't make it sound stupid. And then oh, wow. we brought the actors in and recorded them saying that in the cutting room. Tom, Tony Edwards, Val Kilmer, everybody. That's great. So did, did these Top Gun pilots have writing credits? So it was it splash one from those sessions? <laughs> Nothing, but they were great, man. That's were- awesome. Yeah, because that's probably a big challenge is not making it too detailed to where it's just Navy gobbledygook mumbo jumbo, yeah. but also yeah. making it relevant to where pilots aren't going. That's bullshit. Yes, exactly. Yeah, we got him. We got him, Flex. <laughs> Did you have to change the script? Was it so out there um, in terms of like the maneuvers, or were you able to kind of get what was written? No, we had to change the script. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. So the there were some concessions. Not for the ground story, but for the flying sequences. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Incredible. Would you say this was the most challenging movie for you to edit? The most challenging movie for me to edit was, without question, Days of Heaven. Days of Heaven. Oh, wow. And, yeah. and that's, uh, that's considered, what, what do I have here? The 45th best edited film as judged by the, the Guild? Is that the AFI list or something like that? Yeah. Did, did you put stock into stuff like that? I mean, I know it's like voted on by Guild members. It, it must mean more than maybe. No, it's all Okay, yeah. Did you have similar challenges with Days of Thunder that you did with Top Gun? Well, the biggest challenge we had on Days of Thunder was that it wasn't Top Gun. Ooh, yes. We always felt that, you know. I, well, I, it was more than that. Jerry sent me the script, and I called him back and said, you really got a green light to make this? And he said, yeah, the studio loves it. I said, well, shit, what they love is Tom Cruise in a fast plane and Robert Towns' name is on the front page. This is a piece of shit. This is not good. And, uh, and, and Don Simpson said to me when we were in North Carolina and we just started shooting, and, he, Don, and I said to Don, Don and Jerry were in the cutting room with me, just the two of them. We, I don't know if we'd even started shooting yet. We may have been a couple of days away. And I said to Don, Don, what are we doing here? And Don said, boy, I don't fucking know. Ask my partner. 
I just but, watched it last night. It is a lot of fun. Um, I was curious. For, your, for four reels are. The rest of it is stupid. And I always, I always said to Jerry, I said, well, you have to, Michael Rooker's got to die in that car accident. Yeah. And he needs to die. If he lives, then why is Cruz driving again? Yeah. Why, why does he go drive? He's scared shitless. And uh, so we have a town right as the scene, which we shot in a reshoot where Nicole Kidman comes to see him in his trailer and says, why are you doing this? And he says, because I don't have anything else to do. I got to do this. I can't say no. And he thinks he's, he's driving to help uh, Michael Rooker's character. But we see at the beginning of the race that Michael Rooker got through his surgery, so he's alive. So Cruz should go back home. He doesn't need to drive now. Yeah, right. Well, he was, he was driving to cover his debts on some house he was trying to build. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. I love that, that the editor has such a hand in, in working with obviously the director and, but like that it speaks back to your, your passion for storytelling. And when the story just doesn't make sense to, to you, the editor, you're, you're happy to raise your hand and throw a suggestion. Yeah. Well, you're in trouble. You know that. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't matter. I always tell people, when I get called, I get called, as Paul gets called a lot, to come in and fix movies. And I always tell the producers and the studio is, well, here's the thing. When a movie doesn't work, I can make it, or if it's slow and doesn't work, I can make it move a little faster, but I can't make it a good movie. Right. The problem starts in the script. Not, it's not now not after you've shot a bad script. And that's what, on Days of Thunder, as far as I'm concerned, we shot a bad script. Wow. I think that's, yeah, that's a lot of the critiques of it. I mean, was it fun to cut together, um, you know, the, the race footage at all? Um, or was it kind of, were you just trying to save the movie? Um, yeah, it was not fun cut, to cut together. Look, I mean, here's the thing. Think about it for a second. What are you cutting together? Cars going in a circle. Yeah. There's not a lot of drama there, so um, and Some that's sports fans might argue that's just the sport, right? Hey, there's not a lot of drama. Cars going in a circle. Rubbing is racing. Well, you, you certainly made like the little bumps pretty exciting. I yeah, mean, that's definitely the best. Part. I mean, Tony, Tony did that. You know, I mean, he worked really hard on it yeah. because <laughs> because NASCAR wouldn't let. He Tony wanted to put a camera on the track. And they said, yeah, you could do that. And when you're all done, you have to repay the entire track. So we could do that. And, uh, and we couldn't race among real race cars because there could have been an accident. And we had so many accidents among our cars. It was ridiculous. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, Every day. So, Every day. Wow. This was a question that we asked Paul and, and I'm really excited to get your answer on, but you've edited all these different actors. You're uh, somebody that loves actors, as you said, whether it's Walter Matthau and the fortune cookie and grumpy old men, you got Tom Cruise, all the people in Thin Red Line, et cetera. Has there been a particular actor that you've enjoyed editing the most? Oh, golly. Well, I found what, what was interesting about what Paul said is that like new Peter Lilongo is one of the few actors to actually thank the editor in, in her exception speech for the award, um, which is crazy that more people don't do it. I mean, they're making your performance and it's now more evident than ever after talking to you and Paul about that. Um, yeah. I, I loved cutting Marty Sheen in Badland. I loved cutting De Niro in Midnight Run. Not just De Niro, Groden. I mean, uh, they're both fantastic in Midnight Run. Uh, Eddie in, and Nick Nolte, both in 48 Hours, were phenomenal. Um, Nick is fantastic in Thin Red Line. Yeah. Um, is that because they give you a lot to work with? Uh, yeah. Your job easier? Not just that. Everything they give you is good. Everything. So it's like a wealth of riches, sort of. You really... You know, you want, you, you want to make sure you're doing right to them. You're doing it right for them, that you're using their best takes. And, you know, I mean, er, well, actually, the, uh, most of the, not every actor, but a lot of the actors in Thin Red Line are terrific. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, Sean's a great actor. And, um, Nick was fantastic. John Cusack is terrific. Um, Michael Keaton is fun. Um, I bet, yeah, he actually seems like a guy that would uh, <laughs> give you a lot of stuff. He's very likable because I, I I know him because I directed Second Unit on the second Batman movie. Oh, so that's that, right. Yeah. I, got, yeah. They, I mean, actors, for me, I'll be blunt about this. I'd love to say that what I do on movies is, is what makes a, a movie great. It's not. For me, it's about writing and acting. Mm-hmm. That makes great movies. Not the directing, not the editing, not the camera work. It's writing and acting is what makes great movies. Interesting. Yeah, uh, you've worked with some pretty high profile um, musicians, uh, you know, uh, the Hans Zimmer uh, in yeah. two uh, yeah, Marconi. Um, are you heavily involved in kind of the sound editing? And uh, with Paul, we learned a lot about kind of uh, the use of temp tracks and kind of how he was able to really influence uh, what the score would become or, you know, what songs were placed over what, you know, editing to music. Is that important to your process? Temp tracks are what the score is all about. Uh, it's so important. I don't show anybody any scene without music. It's just, I never do it. And I started doing that on Badlands. I mean, we just did it all the time. Um, uh, Morricone on Days of Heaven, it was full of previous Morricone uh, scores. Uh, Every movie is like that. Uh, All of them, they just, it's so important. Uh, As a matter of fact, there's a wonderful music editor named Will Kaplan who came up with a great expression you want to make sure your composer worships at the temple of the temp. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> as opposed to being, uh, what, um, forced into a corner, as I think Paul mentioned one time, where it's like this, the, the temp track was so great and the, producer, the um, director was like, I want the composer to make exactly what this Yeah, that, that, that can't happen. But, uh, but you just don't want to show the movie without the temp music, because you want to make sure that the scenes work in the best way they can. And the temp music really shows that. And plus, it must help you in, in finding the pace in the editing room, right? Or, or do you kind of have it cut together, and then the music just kind of brings out the emotion? You, you cut it together first. But then, you know, you okay. do, the music does show you that. It definitely does. There's no question about it. Music is so, it's why composers get paid so much money. They're so important. They're like screenwriters in a way. When they're good, they're really good. You think about what uh, that, the work that John Williams does or Marconi or just all these people, or even just the the impact that Kenny Loggins has in Top Gun, (laughs) right? It's just so important to that movie. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, Hans Zimmer just can't stop making uh, incredible. No. No. And we cut, you know, Days of Thunder was the first movie Hans ever did in the United States. Oh, I didn't know that. That's cool. Hans started in the U.S. He, everything before that he had done in England. And uh, I think he'd only gotten one credit before that, which was uh, Driving Miss Daisy. Um, and, uh, but that was not done here. That, he, that was all done in England, uh, the music. And then he moved to Daytona Beach for the shooting of Days of Thunder. He, we ate, Hans and I ate every meal together for three months. Wow. <clears throat> Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And his room was right around the corner from my cutting room. And he would write music there. And we put it to the picture. And right then, while we were cutting. Wow. Yeah. Great. That's such a great story. To... To wrap up our conversation here, I wanted to give the power back to you, Billy, and a lot of people that interview you probably ask you about Top Gun and Pee Wee and, and, you know, those kind of, that run of movies that you have as some of their favorites. Is there a movie that you wish someone would ask you about or talk to you more uh, that, that is near and dear to your heart that you'd like to talk to us about a little bit on here? Yeah, it comes out on January 15th. It's called American Skin. Okay. And it's Nate Parker's new movie. 
Oh, and he's the one that did uh, what was the um, it's for, uh, birth of a uh, birth of a nation, birth of a nation, birth of a nation. Yeah, and uh, his new movie is a really powerful, powerful movie, and um, and it was finished in September of 2019, but it's on. It's finally coming out January 15th. Is this um, going to be a straight-to-streaming situation? Yeah. Yep. It's called American Skin. You can see the trailer for it now. If you went online, you can watch the trailer. Um, and uh, it's a very powerful, really, really good movie. That's great. Yeah, I can't wait to check that out. Thanks for the recommendation. Yeah. yeah. Well, did you ever get to go back and re-watch any of these? I mean, you spend so many time just pouring over every single frame um, is there anything that you can even enjoy if you were to watch again? Is there anything rediscoverable? Oh, there's a section that's in red line I've cut out. When they go up the hill to take the machine gun nest, the Japanese machine gun nest, we cut that into two sections. I would have made it one. Mm-hmm. Uh, little things like that. There is one big thing, <laughs> and that's Tree of Life. Have you seen Tree of Life? Yeah, just watched it yesterday. Yeah. Oh my God! Oh, which version did you watch? Whatever's on Amazon currently. Okay. All right. Yeah. Anyway, is that theatrical? Uh, uh, yeah, I, yeah, pretty sure. Um, but there is a longer version where Terry puts some scenes back in. Um, but on in the case of Tree of Life, I would you know the the entire section of uh, starting with the Big Bang and the whole that I would have cut that throughout the movie and related what you were watching, the scenes that you watched, to what was going on with the family story. Oh, cool. So yeah. instead of all in one place, you would instead get of kind of slicing? Spot. Made it too much like homework to me, like school. Interesting. I wanted, <laughs> yeah. have, I wanted it to have more to do with the family story because the idea of the movie uh, is that the creation of the universe is very similar to the creation of a family. Okay. I wanted it to feel like that. So, But Terry said to me, no, you only think that because you smoke too much pot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I said, yes, I agree with that. Because when you smoke pot, you realize that stuff, that that's what the creation of the universe is like the creation of a family. However, I said, kids of today and younger, the younger generation, they don't need drugs to understand that. They understand it if you make that clear. And that's why I think we should do that. So that was the one thing I would have changed in Tree of Life. Interesting. Oh, cool. And it more time though, kind of. Yeah. Tree of Life, part of what I got from it was, you know, if you want to understand the story of a man's life uh, and the creation of a man's life, you've got to start with creation. And if you want to understand the story of Billy Weber's career, you got to go all the way back to fortune cookie and in the basement of that, uh, that building there. So thank you so much for your stories today. Yeah. When we, when we get the Billy Weber memoir, days of heaven and thunder. (laughs) I kept telling them when uh, I said, you know, you really shouldn't do this Days of Thunder title. I already put <laughs> a Days of movie. It didn't make yeah. any. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. So. Um, well, yeah, Billy, thanks so much for coming along. And um, I, I, I wish you were uh, editing the new Top Gun Maverick. That's uh, a movie I'm excited about. But but your co-editor was uh, is on that. For a while, yeah. I'm so glad I was not on that. Oh, oh, oh really? Oh, yeah. For years, I was called about by Paramount. So there's talk, uh, there's a bunch of rumblings going on about making another Top Gun. And I said, they only think that, your executives only think that because they weren't there when we made the first one. You don't realize how hard that was to make <laughs> make that work. Don't go back there, but they went. Don't so. do it. Yeah. Um, well, what's funny is that you mentioned about the, the pilots having a hard time getting the shot. So that's why Tom Cruise is now flying the plane, apparently. There you go. <laughs> Maybe there you he'll go. be able to get them. Um, but yeah, anyway, thanks so much for your time, Billy. I really, You're welcome. Really thanks for asking. It. We're, 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 we're just two curious guys that just love kind of hearing how the sausage gets made. So well, really you fun. feel free to call me or contact me if you have any questions. So 
Absolutely. Maybe we will uh, January 15th when yeah, American Skin comes I would love to hear what you think of American Skin. Come on, I'd we'll love- talk about it. Yeah, yeah, I actually can't wait to watch that. that, that that'd be I would love- watch the trailer. See what you think of the trailer. For sure. Right. Well, yeah. we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks then. All right. Thanks Maybe again. We'll get, we'll get that video up and running. <laughs> yeah, really. yeah. I don't get it. So. All right. Well, thank you again, Billy Weber. You are a legend, and, and I appreciate your time today. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Wash your hands. Stay safe. And watch American Skin. We'll see you guys next time. Yeah. Special thanks. Bye. Bye. Oh